All right, good morning. Christ is risen. He is risen Amen. Now, turn with me to Genesis chapter 42, verse 10. In our last lesson, the brothers showed up in Egypt, along with the rest of the world, uh, to buy grain for their families. And they're confronted by an Egyptian ruler who suspects them of foul play, accuses them that they are spies. Today, we're going to see how the brothers respond to those accusations. But before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. We thank you, O Lord, that you are with us. We thank you that you've given us your word. We thank you that we serve a great and holy God, and we ask that you would help us as we study your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 10. And they said unto him, Nay, my Lord, but to buy food are thy servants come. We are all one man's sons. We are true, or as the New King James Version puts it, honest men. Thy servants are no spies. So reacting to uh, the accusation that they are there on nefarious purposes, they respond to this imposing Egyptian ruler with four quick short sentences. Number one, we're here to buy food. When their brothers answer this question, it's perhaps the first time in a long time, at least in our narrative, that they've actually told the truth. And then they say, number two, we are all one man's sons. And they mentioned their family relationship to convince this inquisitor that they are indeed not spies. But... They're arguing that no foreign king in their right mind would send ten brothers to spy out, especially if they were the sons of one man. A spy would be just one person operating without the entanglements of a bunch of jealous, fickle, and foolish brothers. Number three, we are true or honest men. Really? As uh, commentator Victor Hamilton wrote, what about the explanation they offered to Jacob about Joseph's coat that they supposedly found? That was hardly an illustration of honesty. They are correct about their family roots, and they are correct about the reason for their visit to Egypt, but they are wrong in describing their character. Then they come to a climax, uh, emphasis of the rebuttal of Joseph's charge. We are not spies. But note here, even though they are emphatic, they're still polite and civil. They're using the third person, your servants. So they're being deferential, using good etiquette, not only in Hebrew, but also in the land of Egypt. Verse 12, And he said unto them, Nay, but to see the nakedness of the land ye are come. And so Joseph is adamant and emphatic. No, he contradicts them and he accuses them again of being a spies. And he uses that oft-used tactic that we mentioned in our last lesson of repeating the charge over and over. And the repetition is designed to elicit information. And he is successful. Verse 13, And they said, Thy servants are twelve brethren, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, 
The youngest is this day with our father, and one is not. They fall over themselves to try and get out from under the pressure of this grand inquisitor. And they brothers volunteer details about their family to try and prove their honesty. The servants are 12 brethren, sons of one man. And then they give unsolicited information that would have been music, a calm comfort to Joseph's ears and heart. The youngest one is now with his father. His brother and his father are still alive. He must have, at that very moment, breathed a prayer of thanksgiving to Jehovah God. Praise the Lord, they are still alive. But then they tack on in the Lord's providence, uh, them realizing what they're doing. Oh, and, and one is not. Just as an aside, a, a tail end comment. Joseph must have thought, oh, really? Open your eyes. I stand right before you. Somewhat ironic that here you are bowing right before the one that you think is dead and gone. And what did they mean anyway by this cryptic remark, one is not? Sounds like an euphemism for death. One thing for sure, it's being used by the brothers to cover up what really happened to Joseph. It's true, they did not know if Joseph was dead or alive. It's been 20 years since that incident of selling him off to the slave traders. But they had implied to their father that he was dead. And for many years, no doubt, that was their stock answer to anybody who asked about Joseph. The traders, the other workers, the slaves. Hey, you know, I remember your, your younger brother, Joseph. You know, we used to trade with him. What, whatever happened to him? Oh, uh, the animals got him. He must have died. But the mention of the youngest brother is what interests Joseph. It captures his attention and leads to great concern on his part. If his half-brothers had treated him so wrongfully, what might they have done to his full brother, Benjamin? So he seizes on the mention of Benjamin as a means of figuring out whether they're really telling the truth or not. With that information, he takes the plot into an unexpected, clever, wise direction. Verse 14. And Joseph said unto them, that is it that I spake unto you, saying, Ye are spies. So Joseph appears to have not even heard what his brothers have just said. There's no connection between what he says now, just repeating the accusation, and what they had let drop. Oh, one is not. Instead, he levels the accusation again, you're spies, and he decides to test them. So doing, he's acting the part of a harsh, stubborn Egyptian official, cruel taskmaster, and he plays the part perfectly. And in the ancient world, this would have raised no eyebrows. 
This is par for the course. This would have been normal interactions with a foreign ruler like this. And of course, Joseph's aim is before he can accept them and take them as they are and then try to reconcile, he must know the truth about Benjamin, his brother. And that will require not just one test, but a series of tests. Verse 15, Hereby ye shall be proved. By the life of Pharaoh ye shall not go forth hence, except your youngest brother come hither. He takes an oath by the life of Pharaoh that he would keep the men as prisoners because they're spies until they can show that they are indeed not spies, until they can bring their brother back to Egypt. Now, John Calvin believes that Joseph errs in taking this oath. He believes it's a violation of the first commandment, writing, There is, I confess, in this form of swearing which Joseph uses, something deserving of censure, for it was a profane adulation among the Egyptians to swear by the life of the king. In other words, the Egyptians, by swearing by the life of the king, were, in a sense, acknowledging, okay, he's to be worshipped, and Joseph ought not to do this. Of course, other commentators disagree. There's alternative uh, explanation to that. John Gill suggests that it's a strong Aservation, that is, he's declaring earnestly or solemnly that as dear as the life of Pharaoh was to him, so surely they should not stir from the place where they were unless their youngest brother Benjamin was brought thither. And also we should note that it was common in ancient days to swear by the king's life, similar to the Hebrew oath, as my lord the king lives. For example, when Yitai, the Gittite, swears allegiance to David, he uses that phrase when David is escaping from his son Absalom, 2 Samuel 15, 21. And Ethai answered the king and said, As the Lord liveth, and as my lord the king liveth, surely in what place my lord the king shall be, whether in death or life, even there also will thy servant be. So the oath calls on the king, or the pharaoh in this case, to act as a witness. And of course, Joseph is uh, playing the part of an Egyptian ruler to his brothers. And uh, swearing by the life of Pharaoh would be expected. It would be something that an oath an Egyptian official would use. So that's different alternatives to the reason why he's using this Oath. And so he begins his tests. Test number one Is Benjamin really alive? Hereby ye shall be proved. Ye shall not go forth hence except your youngest brother come hither. So ye shall be proved. That is, you're going to be examined. You're going to be scrutinized. You're going to be tested. You're going to be proved. And the word has a metallurgical connotation something that should be uh, familiar to many of us, to refine as silver in the fire, as in Psalm 66, verse 10, For thou, O God, hast proved us, thou hast tried us, as silver is tried. So testing the silver, having the dross drop away, that which is valuable coming to the forefront. 
And that's what Joseph's goal here is. He's trying to find out the value of the men. That is, he's trying to attempt if they are telling the truth. And first, they themselves shall be tested. And how will they do that? Well, it all revolves around Benjamin. And no doubt Joseph, through this entire interrogation, has been pondering the absence of Benjamin among the brothers. Maybe thinking to himself, why is he not here? If my father sent all the brothers, why did he not send Benjamin? Do the brothers resent Benjamin? Has he become like I was, the object of my father's favor? Or had they just simply lied? They said Benjamin was home, but they also said that Joseph was dead. Since they lied about Joseph, are they lying about Benjamin? Can they produce their brother? Or will they have to admit that he too is no more? Now when we step back and look at what Joseph's doing, it's fairly obvious that there's some flaws in his little test, his plan here. There's a loophole, and no doubt it's obvious to him. How would the appearance of Benjamin coming down from Canaan to Egypt suddenly erase all suspicion from the brothers that they're spies? Yes, it would prove that they're honest about their home life, but how does that have anything to do with coming down and exploring the land and finding a weakness so they can report back to some foreign would-be conqueror? Well, Joseph's tests are a smokescreen. For his real purposes, he wants to know if Benjamin's alive, and more importantly, he wants to be reunited with him. Test number two. Will someone volunteer to go back and get Benjamin? Verse 16. Send one of you, and let him fetch your brother, and ye shall be kept in prison, that your words may be proved, whether they be any truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely ye are spies. And he put them all together into ward three days. So he throws a book at them, so to speak. His plan is at once merciful, he doesn't kill them, <laughs> but is also stern. He's putting nine brothers in prison. One, only one, can go back and retrieve Benjamin. And if they fail to bring him back, the consequences will be dire. They're spies, and the implication is, is they'll be executed. And of course, this plan has some very interesting parallels to what happened to Joseph. As they had once spurred his pleas for mercy when they were throwing him into the pit, so now any pleas that they might offer will be spurned. As they had sent him away into slavery, they too are going to have a taste of great distress and trouble. As they had imprisoned him in the pit now, they too will be imprisoned. And he does make good on his threat. And in a display of power over them, and to make sure they realize he is indeed serious, he throws all of them, all ten brothers, into prison for three days. And it's 
tantalizing to think that just possibly he threw them into the same prison where he had spent so many years. And what a distressing, frightful three days that must have been for the brothers. They must have been greatly dismayed. And we can just imagine what those three days must have been like. The bickering, the recriminations, the blaming, the anger, the spit and sputter. They must have just gone at each other. And as no doubt, as they argued, it must have dawned on them. Number one, even if somebody does go back and return with Benjamin, there's no guarantee that this ruler wouldn't throw Benjamin into prison too. Number two, they could spend the rest of their lives rotting in this prison. There's no guarantee they're ever getting out. And the thought of divine justice also crosses their mind, as we will see next week in the following verses. What they had done to Joseph was now falling on them from the hand of God. And the three days would have also given them plenty of time to squabble about, okay, who gets to go back to Canaan? Now, we might think everybody would want to volunteer, right? I want to get out of here. Let's go back. Well, there may be a, something that's holding them back from any volunteers. Who wants to face their father all by themselves and explain, ah, I know you sent ten, but only one son has come back. And so this is the essence of this particular test. Is there a leader? Is there just one among the brothers who have matured to the point, who fear God enough to argue for the right thing and to either appoint somebody or volunteer to go back? Maybe Joseph's even thinking about Reuben. He hasn't discovered the real character of all of his different brothers yet, and his last memory of Reuben is that he had come back to try and save him 20 years ago. Second in this test, is there one whom the others will entrust? The leader may say, okay, I think, I think maybe Simeon should go back, or Reuben. And all the other brothers will say, I don't know. I don't think we can trust that guy. I don't think he'll come back for us. So obviously, Joseph had no intention of keeping them in prison, even if they did not know that. And after three days, he summoned them again back to appear before him. And it's obvious that they have failed these tests. There is no leader. No one has volunteered to Canaan to go back and fetch his brother. It seems that not a single brother is trustworthy to return and face their father on their own. So, volunteer, so test number three comes up. Will someone volunteer to stay behind? Verse 18. And Joseph said unto them the third day, This do and live, 
for I fear God. If ye be true men, let one of your brethren be bound in the house of your prison. So Joseph changes his plan, changes his mind. Instead of nine brothers staying in prison and one going, he swaps it. One brother's going to stay behind and all nine others get to go. And what prompted this change? Was it a ploy to scare them and make them think about their situation? Or was it a genuine change of plan midstream? Or had he devised this from the very beginning? Well, we don't know, but there could be at least three reasons why he would switch to this plan. First of all, one brother by himself would not be able to take back enough supplies for Benjamin, his father, and all of their families. He wouldn't be able to handle that task. His father would also very be unlikely to let Benjamin go if nine of his sons had disappeared on a trip to Egypt. Most importantly, I think, his, he would have considered his father. If nine brothers did not return from the journey, how would that affect Jacob? Could he sustain the blow and the stress that would come upon him, not knowing what had really happened to his nine sons? Well, it seems that it might have been part of his plan all along, but whatever the reason, Joseph gives credit to the highest motives for making a change of his decision. He says, this do and live, for I fear God. This act of mercy must cut deep into the heart of their hearts, especially as Joseph declares that he's releasing them because he fears God. Joseph here uses the name Almighty God, and he doesn't use the covenant name Jehovah, which may indicate to the brothers, oh, how would this guy know the name of Jehovah? As such, the brothers probably doubted his sincerity when he declared that he feared God. Throughout Genesis, the patriarchs are very suspicious of foreigners and their lack of reverence for God. For example, Abraham, when he'd gone down and uh, was confronted by King Abimelech in the land of Gerar, he declared, there is no fear of God in this place. But in the deepest recesses of their hearts, they must have realized that by this declaration of this man, even if it was perfunctory, the Holy Spirit uses that to prick their hearts. They don't fear God. And this expression, fear God or fear of the Lord, does indeed sometimes describe the, the worship of the Lord, but it also can mean that he just is a God-fearer, referring to moral conduct. So though Joseph's professions may have sounded hollow to his brothers, he was, of course, telling the truth, unlike his brothers. He does indeed fear Jehovah. And he also does the right thing because he fears God. Commentator Victor Hamilton wrote, 
if we were to understand by this phrase that Joseph is claiming that his word is reliable, then a powerful contrast is set up. Here stands one, Joseph, whose word is reliable, for he fears God, before a group, Joseph's brothers, whose word may be quite unreliable and who fear Joseph. Their future, or lack thereof, is in his hands. So the implication is that Joseph is a man of integrity and you brothers are not. And the sincere and expression of fearing God also reinforces Joseph's power over them, if not for the Almighty. I would not let you go. Picking up in verse 19. Go ye, carry corn for the famine of your houses, but bring your youngest brother unto me. So shall your words be verified, and ye shall not die. And they did so. So as proof that he is indeed a God-fearing man, as well as having compassion on his family, he commands them to take the grain back home. And he once again reiterates the conditions on which he's allowing them to do that. One, your brother's gonna, one of your brothers is going to stay back in prison, and two, you must return with Benjamin. And they did so. The phrase here means that, yes, they agreed to the plan. They will leave one behind. They'll go back with the grain, and they'll try to bring back Benjamin. But what about Joseph's test? Has anyone volunteered to stay behind? Remember, these are men that left Joseph in a pit to be sold into slavery. And then they told their father that an animal had eaten him. And they only did that after Judah convinced, hey, you can make a lot of money if you sell him. We can't profit if we kill him, so let's spare his life. In other words, if one of them shows enough trust in the other nine to volunteer to be left behind, it would indicate that sanctification is going on, that there's a change in the brother's heart. But there is no indication of a change. They've been three days in prison, and so far we don't see any kind of measure of repentance. They don't confess their lies. They have nothing to say for themselves. And, as we've already noted, no one stays behind. No one volunteers to be in prison. They don't trust other brothers to come back to get them out of prison. And they probably also don't trust this Egyptian ruler to keep them alive in prison. So Joseph has to pick a brother to stay behind, and he chooses Simeon. And why does he choose Simeon? Well, we're not told. But we also don't know very much about Simeon except for one very crucial incident in the book of Genesis. Along with Levi, his brother, he had murdered the Shechemites as revenge for the rape of their sister. Then further on in Genesis 49, Jacob is on his deathbed and he's handing out blessings 
to his sons, but he also hands out curses. And he curses Simeon for this particular cruelty of taking revenge on the Shechemites. So he is not a picture of virtue by any means. Considering this, it's easy to imagine that he may have been one of the ringleaders in putting Joseph into that pit and coming up with a plot to kill him. Maybe Joseph knows that. Maybe he's meeting out justice. We don't know, but the detention of Simeon does serve two purposes. It is, he is basically a hostage to encourage the other brothers to produce Benjamin. And second, it poses the brothers another test. Will they abandon him? The real question is not only are you willing to bring Benjamin back, but just as significantly, are you willing to leave Simeon behind and let him rot in prison? Will you abandon one brother, Simeon, like you abandon me, Joseph? your brother. So shall your words be verified and ye shall not die, Joseph says. Saying they will all not die if they pass the test and underscores the involvement of all the brothers. It's not just Simeon. And it puts more pressure on the brothers. And they're starting to feel it. If they don't come through, Simeon is probably going to die. This pressure is also going to motivate them to convince their father to let Benjamin return to them. And under this increasing pressure, under all the failure of these tests, facing a man who declares that he fears the Lord, the Holy Spirit begins to work in their hearts and begins to convict them. And the brothers begin to crack, as we will see next week. Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for the testimony of Joseph, a man who fears God. We pray that you would help us to fear you in every way, reverencing you, worshiping you, and also obeying your commands. Help us, we pray, even this day, in Jesus' name, amen.